I shared with you last week that the last five chapters of the book of Judges are more or less an appendix. These chapters contain for us two stories, two pictures, if you would, of what spiritual life was like in Israel in the time of the judges. And what we saw in the first picture that we looked at last week is that it wasn't pretty. And as unpretty as last week's story was, the one that we get tonight is ten times worse. As we see the culmination of what happens to a people who turn their back upon uh, the Lord. Now, the theme in these last chapters is, there was no king in Israel... And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We see that phrase or fragments of that phrase peppered throughout these texts and scriptures pointing us to the cause and reason of why things were the way that they were. Now by way of introduction into tonight's story, I say this, is that God throughout the Bible paints himself or portrays himself as a shepherd And he portrays his people as his flock or as his sheep. Now the job or the role of a shepherd is to do three things. Number one is to feed. Number two is to lead. And number three is to protect. To feed implies that he's going to bring us to maturity or complete what he's begun in our lives. That he'll finish and be committed to us. He'll feed us. That he will lead us implies that he'll direct our path. That he'll get us in the right place in the right way at the right time if we follow. And then to protect, his role in protecting us implies that there are hazards. That there's a danger involved in this life and in this world. And that danger is represented in the presence, the reality of an enemy. We have an enemy. His name is Satan. And the Bible says that he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So how does God, the faithful shepherd, protect us, his sheep, his flock, from the destructive ways and desires of our enemy? Well, he does that in two ways. Number one is that he is stronger than our enemy. He essentially, as a shepherd, draws a line. He puts a line of protection around his people, and he forbids Satan from crossing that line, and Satan cannot cross it, period. It isn't as though God has to always have a watchful eye upon that line and Satan has one of those electric fence collars around his neck and and he tries to cross it every now and again and he gets zapped. It doesn't work like that. He doesn't have the authority to come even close to that line because God is stronger than our enemy. And so God insulates us and he protects us from the hand of our enemy. But at the same time, God keeps him from crossing over to us. We also have a responsibility. And that responsibility is that God says, you, Christian, don't cross over that line into his territory. Now, Satan is no dummy. In fact, he's extremely smart. The Bible says that he is wiser than Daniel. And so as a crafty, evil, wicked, diabolical lion who seeks to devour and destroy God's people, this is what he does. He doesn't come close to the line that God said he cannot cross. He backs away from it. And he draws his own imaginary line somewhere back here. And he pretends that that's the line he cannot cross. And, and so he stands over here and he, and he devours maybe anybody who's on this side of that line. But anybody that's in this neutral zone, we call it, he, he leaves them alone. 
And so here's what happens. You're a person of God and you're walking along on this side of the line and you see other people of God that are walking on this side of the line, but nothing bad is happening to them. They're violating something that God said that they're not to do, but no evil has befallen them. And so you just think, well, you know, nothing's happening to them on that side of the line. And so maybe it would be okay if I go on that side of the line. I've never done that before. Ever since I became a Christian, I've stayed right where God's told me to stay. But you know what? I'm just, I'm going to date outside God's kingdom a little bit. And hey, hey, nothing bad really happens. And so a, a whole bunch of people come over here. And Satan, he's so smart. You know what he does? He draws a new line. He moves it back just a little bit more. And he pretends that he can't cross that line. And then he lures some of God's people to come a little bit closer onto his side. And and thus and so it progresses. He keeps moving his line backwards, blurring the lines that God has drawn and said, don't cross these lines. And he gets it so that people, hey, I follow God. I walk where I want. And look, nothing happens to me. I go on this side of the line. I go on this side of the line. No problems. No big deal. It doesn't happen. But Satan knows That at some point, there's going to be an unsuspecting saint, isolated on this side of the line, not insulated by God's boundary. And when he can, when opportunity arises, he will strike. And he will take out that person, and he will destroy their lives. He'll take them out absolutely and uh, completely. Now, all of that movement that takes place on Satan's side of the line in that neutral zone that's ever-expanding and ever-moving, that's called doing what's right in your own eyes. We measure and gauge what's right and wrong based upon the perceived consequences of those actions. Well, if God doesn't immediately judge my behavior that is violating what he said, well, then that must mean that God accepts that behavior. And so we make our standards of right and wrong based upon the consequences and not based upon his word. And that's exactly what was going on in these days with these people. Satan's line was moving further and further and further away. And at some point, the shepherd, who's faithful to his flock that's going to complete what he began, has to say, look, none of my people are walking in the pasture that I've laid out for them. All of them have gone on the other side. So how does the shepherd then sort it all out and bring the lines back where they're supposed to go and bring his people back where they're supposed to be? Here's what he does. Is that he allows something so terrible to take place that it shakes everyone all the way to the core and they begin to ask the question, what in the world is going on? And that's exactly what's going to take place with God's people in this text here in this thing. And it's the ultimate destiny of what happens when one nation under God turns away from God. So let's look at our text. And we're going to move through a lot of verses at a time. We'll stop at the highlight places. We'll pull together the melody that ties all this together and uh, see what God has to say to us. So it says in verse 1, it says, It came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim, and he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now this is the second story, and it's also the second time that we see a Levite, a different Levite from last week. And this time we see him also in the mountains of Ephraim, and we see that he takes a concubine. Now a concubine was more or less a female servant. 
That was the politically correct definition, what you would say to make it sound okay. But what a concubine really was for the one who had her was a woman who was intended for pleasure. She was bound by all of the restrictions of a wife and that she wasn't to go out from the man whom she was united with. But she didn't have the privileges of a wife. She wasn't endowed. She wasn't considered the man's wife. And so this man takes a concubine. Now, this was not acceptable to God. He never allowed this, condoned it, or said it was acceptable. God's ideal, God's standard concerning marital relationships was one man and one woman for life. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, singular, and they too shall be one flesh. And so we see this man crossing God's lines. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's in a place of remoteness, and now he's taking a concubine. But then in verse 2, it says, But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four whole months. And so here is this woman, she goes out on this man, she cheats on him, and then she doesn't return to him, but she goes back to her home in Bethlehem, Judah, her father's house. Now, the historian Josephus chimes in on this episode. and He tells us what the text doesn't tell us here, and you could take it or leave it, but it's just for your thought to ponder, that this woman was stunningly beautiful, and that this man was extremely infatuated with her, but she not so much with him. And that lines up. She went out on him, and then she goes to her father's house. She obviously has no uh, real great affection for this guy. So here, right at the onset of this situation, we see isolation in the minister of God, fornication, adultery, deceit, and separation. Separation between these two that are supposed to be united by a contract. They're walking according to what is right in their own eyes. Well, The scene intensifies. The stage is set more. Verse 3, it says, Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread and afterward go your way. So they sat down and the two of them ate and drank together. So, you know, obvious here in the text that he's getting drunk with this man. Then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. Then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, Please, refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, The day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow, go your way early so that you can go home. However, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he rose and departed. 
And he came opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. That's what Jerusalem was called prior to it being conquered by King David. And it was a Gentile-controlled area, as we'll find. It says, with him were the two saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with him. They were near Jebus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, and let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. So the servant of this Levite suggests, hey, let's go in there. We can come to an inn uh, in that city. This is a good time. It's starting to get dark. Let's go in. But, verse 12, his master said to him, we will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. So he said to his servant, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed by and they went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And so dusk has now set in. They're entering into the city of Gibeah. And then in verse 15, it says, They turned aside there to go in to lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. Now pause and give me your attention for just a second. Here's a man who is delayed five days in his departure from the father-in-law's house to go back home with his concubine. On the fifth day, he wants to leave. He's detained for half the day, leaves late in the afternoon, travels the five to seven miles north toward, from you know, Bethlehem, passing through what would become Jerusalem later, and they end up in Gibeah. And now we're told in landing in that region, no one would take them into their house. Now, in those days, in Israelite territories, there was no such thing as a Motel 6 or a Hilton Regal, you know, Grand, where you could go and you could pay and and rent a room. The custom of the day is that if you were a traveler, you would come into the open square and you would wait there for the people that were trafficking through the city. And when they would see you, they would recognize that you were a foreigner and there was a code of hospitality. Someone would take you into their home. And you would either, by way of reciprocation for the favor, you would either perhaps pay them for their troubles or supply the evening meal through your resources, but you would also bring other things. People were eager to accept travelers because they would bring news from other areas. They would bring their experiences. They would bring fellowship. They didn't have internet or newspapers. And so there was a certain desire in wanting people to come and stay with you. And it was common. Hospitality was huge in those days in that culture. It still is to this day. When you were brought into someone's house, you were treated better than family. And so there's an oddity here in this text that nobody would take them into their house. And the only thing that we can assume and imagine from the fact that no one did is that the people in the city of Gibeah knew what would happen if they did and what will happen in a moment when someone does. And so here they are, verse 16, it says, Just then, it's almost completely dark, an old man came in from his work in the field at evening, who was also from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. So this man from Ephraim, he's in Benjamin, the tribe, working, and it says that he raised his eyes and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? So he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. 
I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah. And now I am going to the house of the Lord. But there is no one who will take me into his house. Although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys. And bread and wine for myself and for your female servant. And for the young man who is with you, your servant. There is no lack of anything. And the man said, peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility only. Do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house, and he gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet, and they ate and drank. Now, here's a man who's been walking on the wrong side of the line that God has drawn. In a nation of people that are walking on the wrong side of the line that God had drawn, who is in a a place where he has no business being, doing what he has no business doing, And yet he's doing nothing wrong in the eyes of the culture. He's doing everything right in the sight of men. Just as the rest of the nation is. And now tragedy is about to strike. He's in perfect position. He's wandered out of the way of understanding. The lion, who is the enemy of the faith, has observed this man and is about to strike. So what happens? Verse 22. It says, As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him carnally. If you have another translation, it might read there, that we might have sex with him. And That's exactly what that means. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Now, pausing again. Does this scene sound familiar? As I read this scene, I can't help but reflect to a scene back in the book of Genesis where the nephew of Abraham, Lot, was in the city of Sodom. And being visited by a couple of angels, the perverted men of that city came and said the same thing. Bring out those men, not knowing that they were angels, that we might know them carnally. But here's the shocking thing about this repeat of that scene. Is that no longer is it the city of Sodom, a pagan city, of whom God said the men of that city were exceedingly wicked before him. But now this is something that's happening in the territories of Israel amongst the people of God. It has come close to home. What does this tell us? First of all, it tells us that no one, whether you're a Christian or not, no one is incapable of committing even the most grievous of sins. Every one of us in our flesh is capable of dark, dark evil. I've often pictured my own flesh as a sponge that's been saturated with black ink. No matter how many times you wring out that sponge with clean water, there's always going to be a taintedness of that ink in that water forever. And that's our flesh. Our flesh, until we go to heaven, even though we've been forgiven, we're blood-bought, we're sealed, and God is leading us in the right way, we are capable of dark wickedness. And we see that the people of God turned from God, and they came to this level. Concerning perversity, this concept, this idea of homosexual behavior, The Bible puts this forth as, and listen carefully to this part of our Bible study, and don't mix my words up. The Bible calls perversity, homosexuality, the climax of wickedness. Now, wait. It does not say it is more wicked 
than any other sin. It is the climax of wickedness. And by that I mean this, is that it is the fruit that comes out on the far end of the wicked stick. In other words, wickedness starts with sin that exists in us. And as it grows and is not cropped, kept back, crucified, as sin continues to grow, the fruit of that sin manifests itself in different ways. And the furthest point on the branch of sin that is unchecked and unhindered is this area of perversity. There's a vacuum of covetousness that exists in the unrepentant heart. And it can never truly be satisfied by any sin. And so one drink isn't enough. One drink turns into alcoholism. One relationship isn't enough. That relationship turns into extreme womanizing and sex addiction. And when things cannot satisfy the vacuum of the soul that seeks to be satisfied, the carnal soul will continue to find new and crazier ways of satisfying the lust within. And when a soul and a society come to the point where they embrace homosexuality, they've gone to the length as far as it can go where there is no further place to go. And that's what the Bible talks about. And I want to talk about that for a minute. Because homosexuality is not the worst sin in that context. In fact, the origin of homosexuality is every other sin. Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 49 says this. The sin of thy sister Sodom. In other words, from God's perspective, the sin of Sodom was, and then he describes what it was. He says, pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, or idleness of time, and lack of concern for the poor. In other words, God looked at Sodom and he said that the men of Sodom were sinners exceedingly wicked before the Lord. But when he defines the sin that he calls wicked, he doesn't point to homosexuality. He points to the fact that they were laden with pride, fullness of bread, idleness of time, and lack of concern for the poor. And it was those conditions that were present and prolific in Sodom that led them to the point where they became the type of people that they were. And the point of this text is to show us that that became the condition of Israel in those days, and it grew to the point where they were manifesting the same symptoms. We see it right in our text. Pride. We see it laced throughout. This man not willing to go to Jabus, willing to be separated from his wife for four months taking a concubine and thinking he had the right to violate the commands of God. That's pride. Fullness of bread. We see that for five days he was detained in a state of gluttony. Even coming to the man's house in Gibeah, the table was set with delicacies. There was gluttony, fullness of bread. Idleness of time. How does anyone get delayed for five days from their purpose with no regard to a schedule or a daytime or having anywhere to be or to do? There was abundance of idleness and lack of concern for the poor. We see that this man was in the gate, and no one would take him in. Needed a place, there was a need. The people of Gibeah couldn't be concerned with that man's need. They had their own affairs to attend to. And so what do we discover? Is that though it was the men of Benjamin that were doing this exceeding wicked thing, the sin that led to that was prolific throughout the whole nation. And God saw it present in all of them, in the whole region, in everything. It wasn't just the wicked men of Benjamin, and the chastisement will come upon all of them. So why is it bad? Why is perversity, as the Bible calls it, called perversity or looked down upon, not condoned by God in that regard? Well, the word perversity, it means to corrupt or to taint, modifying something from its original substance. 
And that's exactly what homosexuality does to a human being. It perverts it. It modifies it and changes it into something other than what God intended it to be. It perverts man, first of all, theologically. See, the Bible says that God made man in his image. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says that God made man. He took the woman from the man, and then he put them together, and he called their name Adam. In other words, the full expression of man made in the image of God was when a man would be married to his wife. When God put Adam to sleep in the Garden of Eden and removed the rib from his side, there was more than just hardware, more than just a bone, some cells that were taken out of Adam. There was a part of his identity that was taken away also. It was given to the woman. That's why men and women are different. We have a roughness to us. We have a thick hide type of thing. We're stubborn. I mean, we just, some of you women are too. You know, it's a fallen world. You know, but, but my point is, then you look at the woman, and she has a whole other set of qualities. There's a tenderness. There's a motherly side. There's, there's a gentleness. There's something nurturing about her that the man doesn't have. But God said it's in the uniting of the male and the female in marriage covenant that man becomes the expression of the image of God that man created him to be. And to embrace a homosexual position or lifestyle is to violate what God made man to be. It perverts the testimony that God is seeking to make to the world. It also perverts a person psychologically. There's a change that happens. There's a chain, if you would, that grips the mind of someone who embraces that lifestyle. Suddenly, everything about that person's identity is wrapped up in that part of their identity. And they can't be separated from it. There's a chain in it. There's also a perversion physiologically. Male attributes that were designed to be male take on a femininity. And feminine attributes that were designed to be feminine take on a male type of thing. There's a physiological change. Now, God knows this. He highlights it. He says it. And that's why he says, this is not my will. This is wrong. This is sin. It's a divine sanction of God. Now, listen. I know I've gone way deep into extremely controversial waters here. And I know that my words could be twisted. Our church could be branded tomorrow as a hate speech church. I understand that. I really do. If I were sitting in your seat and I was listening to a preacher, and that preacher said, by the authority of God's word, that heterosexual desire is sin in the eyes of God, I know how I would feel. Because I'm extremely heterosexual in my orientation. I'm a man. We're men. So if someone were to say that to me, I understand the way that that would grate upon me. God doesn't accept something that is, is so encrypted in the core of what I am, and I can understand why that would rub against someone when they hear that their sexual orientation isn't right in the eyes of God. But here's the bottom line, is that homosexual sinful tendencies are not worse than heterosexual sinful tendencies. On God's perspective, it's equal. He sees sin as sin. And whether I'm heterosexual or homosexual, if I'm outside of God's will for how he designed that drive to operate, then I've placed myself in a, in, in a danger zone. I'm outside of the place where I'm protected and where I'm safe. But here's the bottom line of it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 says this. 
The Apostle Paul's talking about the conditions of the last days and describing the attitude of men's hearts. And he culminates it by saying this sentence, verse 5. He says that they would have a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from those people turn away. In other words, in the last days, that time is going to be marked by people that have a form of godliness. They're going to profess a relationship with God. They're going to carry around a Bible. They might even quote Christian things, but they deny the power of it. Meaning this, is that if God is all-powerful, and if God, through his death on the cross, broke the power of sin, then that means he has power to set me and anyone else free from whatever sin it is that they struggle with. So whether it's heterosexual excess or homosexual tendencies, or whether it's drug use or other ways of foreign pleasure that are not part of what God ordains and sanctions, no matter what the sin is, God has supplied the power necessary to break that bondage. And if I continue to condone and embrace a lifestyle that God says is wrong, then what I'm doing is I'm having a form of godliness, but I'm denying his power to work in my life and change me. And here's what I know about God. is no matter what sin issue any one of us struggles with, and every one of us has a sin issue that we struggle with, God has supplied the power to break the chains of that sin. And if we will honestly call upon him for victory in whatever that thing is, God will set it right. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in verse 9. Um, and you're not going to get the right verses up there because I forgot to edit the, the transcript. But it says this. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's heterosexual, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. But wait, verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying there in Corinth, There were those among you in your congregation that struggled with that sin. And because of the power of God and the power of the cross, the chains of that sin were broken. And what you once were, you no longer are because God is powerful enough to set you in the right place. And you know what's in the right place? Life. Because he said, I came to give you life. And so we don't preach hate. We're not preaching intolerance. We're preaching that sin destroys that Christ died to give us life, and he can set us free from that sin. And that's our answer. So we turn back to Judges chapter 19. We see this scene, perverse men banging on the doors of this man's house. And the man says, do not commit this wicked outrage. I love this. I I love it because it's ironic, not because it's good. But look at verse 24. Don't commit this outrage. Instead, verse 24, look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now, humble them, and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. And when her master arose in the morning, now that, picture it, mark it, he slept through the night. And he opened the doors of his house 
And he went out to go his way, and there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And she's dead. And he said to her, get up and let us be going. It doesn't get any colder than that. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up, and he went to his place. And just so, you know, just in case it couldn't get any worse, it says, when he entered his house, he took a knife, he laid hold of his concubine, he divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, no such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer and speak up. What in the world is this? I mean, isn't this the Bible? I mean, this is Bible study. Are we even allowed to read this, you know, and, and associate these words with the, the imagery that goes along with it? I mean, what in the world is happening here? Aren't these God's people? Here's the fact. Is that sometimes the only way that God can shake people awake is to allow something so terrible to happen that it causes them to shock, to realize what is going on here. And the amazing thing is that when it does, when something so crazy does happen like this, people blame God for it. And they're gonna, as we'll see in our, in our text coming up. But we get into chapter 20 and we see the reaction of the nation to this. And so it says, some from all Israel uh, came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gibeah, And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. Then the children of Israel said, Tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? So the whole nation is gathered together. They assemble at the house or in the presence of the man, the Levite, who lost his concubine, and they say, now tell us what happened. So verse 4. So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, My concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. Now, this is a little bit of revisionist uh, history here. He doesn't put it forth exactly how it went down. He paints himself in really good light and paints the men of Gibeah in an even worse light and takes no ownership of the fact that he gave her up to them. So, verse 6, I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. So in verse 8, So all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We'll take ten men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand and a thousand out of every ten thousand, to make provisions for the people, that when they come to Gibeah and Benjamin, they, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. They decide 10% of us are going to go up and we're going to wipe these people out. We're going to destroy them for what uh, they have done here. So they're unified in their purpose to expel evil from Israel. But there's a problem. 
And the problem is that they're doing it independent of God. They don't ask for God's counsel. They don't seek him at all. They don't bring it before him. They just make a plan, and they're going to go and execute it in their own strength. And here's another problem. is that What these people are doing is they are attacking the symptom, but they're not attacking the problem. The real problem in the nation is not the men of Benjamin. The problem is that the nation has turned away from God, that they're out of fellowship with him. And all sin's symptoms are is the result of the people of God walking out of fellowship with him. Because you cannot maintain a right course of life if you're not connected to the Lord. Putting away evil is good, but if you're not right with God, it's only a short time until that evil returns. Well, the battle lines are drawn. Verse 12, it says, Then the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now, therefore, deliver up the men the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. So they seek diplomacy. They say, deliver the men who did this thing and we'll just take care of them. But that diplomacy fails. Verse 14, instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who numbered 700 select men. Among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Every one of them could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Can you imagine that? Someone takes a slingshot and, and, and hits the bullseye of a target and then says, Oh, I missed now, there was a hair that was running right down the middle, and I didn't break the piece of hair. I but, but it says that they didn't miss. So these are the fighters of Benjamin. And so verse 17, Now, besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. So here's the battle lines. You have 26,000 Benjamites. Those are the bad guys. And you have 400,000 Israelites. Those are the bad guys. And they're about to go to war against each other. 26,000 perverts versus 400,000 perverts that haven't been perverted all the way yet. And these are the battle lines. 400,000 versus 26,000. And I love verse 18. Because it's me. Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. Make the plans, make the preparations, get everything ready, and then, oh yeah, let's shoot off a prayer and see if God's in this. They said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah first. Now listen, Judah first is an always given Judah is always first. So God is, is saying, hey, you guys know if you're in battle, who goes first? Judah first. Doesn't work out. Watch this. So the children of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. Then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. And the people, that is, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. 
Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. So the children of Israel approached the the children of Benjamin on the second day. And Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. All of these drew the sword. What in the world is going on here? 400,000 men twice defeated by the 26,000 sinner men of Benjamin. And the second time, they even wept and prayed, and God said, go, but yet they still lost the battle. What in the world is going on in this thing? Well, a couple of things for you to think about and consider. There is a wrong way to do a right thing. In other words, is it God's will for them to put away this evil from amongst the children of Israel? We're going to find that, yes, it absolutely is. In fact, from Genesis to Revelation, it's God's will to put evil out from amongst the children of Israel. But there's a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. See, they're doing it in their own will, according to their own strategy, and by their own means and methods. And God isn't going to bless their plans, their means. Also, you cannot, principle number two in this defeat, in place of victory, you cannot let sin grow unhindered without suffering loss. In order for the men of Benjamin to become as defiled as they were, it means that the whole nation had been going astray for quite a long time and looking the other way. All of the people were on the wrong side of God's protection line. And you can't live that way as a Christian, as a person of God, and then when the tower falls down, get out of it without experiencing any loss. It just doesn't happen that way. And I think the Holy Spirit is illustrating that for us here, that there's loss on the side of the Israelites that are seeking to get right as well. Number three, understand this. Why did they lose even though they prayed? Sin is stronger than your greatest faculties. In other words, you think that you're in sin, you're playing around with it, you're hanging out on the other side of God's line, and I can just beat this sin, break this yoke, and jump back on the other side anytime I want. It doesn't work that way. The power of sin is stronger than our ability to defeat it. Without God's help, you can't do it. Even if you put 400,000 men of rage against only 26,000 bonds of iniquity, you can't do it apart from God. Number four, it could be this, and I think it is, is that there's some chastisement that's necessary, not just for Benjamin, but for all the children of Israel. They've been walking astray for a long time. But here's the reason, the main reason why I think they lost the battle even though they're seeking to do a right thing, even though now they've wept, now they've prayed, they've still missed the point. And they finally get it right in verse 26. It says, Then all the children of Israel, that is, all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept and sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now there's repentance. The offering, the sacrifice, the shedding of blood. It was a symbol of repentance. See, they had said, God, we need to get this evil out. 
We don't want to be this kind of nation that's doing this type of thing. We want to be free from this sin. And they sought to purge themselves of that sin, but they hadn't yet repented of the sin. They hadn't yet owned it in the presence of God that they were sinners and that they needed God's help, and yet they didn't deserve it. And it's now that they come to the place of sacrifice, coming to the altar, pleading the blood, if you would, over the sin of their nation, that now they finally get somewhere with God. And it says in verse 27, So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it, saying, Shall I yet go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. Now the rest of the chapter highlights the battle plans. And a lot of it is just they set up an ambush here and these people confronted them there. The outcome of the battle is that now the children of Israel prevail and all but 600 men of the Danites, I'm sorry, the Benjamites perish. So all of the tribe, except for 600 men who take refuge in a rock of Rimen, a place where they were fortified, all of the tribe perishes in this battle. And now in chapter 21, they've created a problem for themselves. They've wiped out one-twelfth of their nation. They've removed a tribe, one whole tribe from them. And they made a stupid vow. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as wife. So they make a vow saying, we're not going to give any of our daughters to the remaining 600 men that survived from this battle. But now they're upset about that. Watch this, verse 2. So the people came to the house of God, and they remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices, and they wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? And so it was on the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord? For they had made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, Surely he shall be put to death. And the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin their brother and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who remain, seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives? And they said, Well, what one is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to the Lord? And, in fact, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were counted, indeed, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So here's what's happening right now, is that they have a problem. They need to find wives for 600 Benjamite men. And they vowed that they can't give any of their sons. So now they've got to figure out a way to give them wives who are Israelite women. And so they say, well, here's a great idea. Who didn't fight with us against Benjamin? We'll go kill all their men and take their women and give them to these guys. Therefore, we keep our vow in not giving any of our daughters. And, you know, and we purge these guys that didn't help us in the battle. So watch verse 10. So the congregation sent, their, sent out their 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children. <laughs> this is great. Isn't it? I mean, can you imagine how far a people can go when they get away from the Lord? And this is the thing that you shall do. 
You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimmon and announced peace to them. So Benjamin came back at that time and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, and yet they had not found enough for them. So they try to solve a problem through their own intellectual genius and they come up with two-thirds of a solution but not quite enough. There's still 200 men that need wives. They're right back in the problem. So verse 15, watch this. It says, And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Do you see that? They blame God. God, how could you let this happen? If there's a loving God in heaven, how could he allow something like this to happen in our land? We heard those things, didn't we, after 9-11? Something so tragic comes to shake a people out of their sinful stupor. And instead of repenting and crying out to God, the people say, well, if there's a God, where was he on 9-11 when people were perishing in those towers? A nation that turned its back on God in every way possible shook their fist, removing him from courts, from schools, from public venues, from prayers, from speech, from every influence of life. And when God allows something to happen that shakes that nation, the people shake their fist at God and say, how could you? It's exactly what's happening here. How could God let this happen? So then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who remain, since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the children of Israel have sworn an oath, saying, Cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. Then they said, In fact, ah, another idea, brilliant. There is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south to Lebanon. Therefore they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, Go, lie and wait in the vineyards. This is great. You're not going to believe this. In fact, if you need a wife, this is one option that you have. You could do this. Watch, verse 21. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, part of the custom of this yearly celebration, then come out from the vineyards and every man catch a wife for yourself from the daughters of Shiloh, then go to the land of Benjamin. In other words, when the women come out to dance, grab one and run home. They're not firing on all eight, you know. (laughs) Then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain that we will say to them, eh, be kind to them for our sakes, because we did not take away for them of any of them in war, Gentiles, For it is not as though you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath. You know, the the oath, we won't give any of our daughters. Look, you're not giving them to the men. They're taking them. It's okay, you know, politics. You know, this is bipartisan Israel now. And so the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught, And then they went and they returned. I just can't believe I'm reading this, you know. (laughs) And they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time. Every man to his tribe and his family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, the saddest testimony to me in this conclusion of the narrative in the book of Judges is not what it says in verse 25, but rather what it says in verse 24. It says that every man departed each to his own inheritance. Now, if you recall, that's exactly how the book began. It says that Joshua dismissed the people and every man went to his own inheritance. And see, that became the root of the problem that led them down the path that they eventually took. See, the people of God are never called to be dwelling in isolation. Just concerned about their own thing, their own life, their own comfort and cares. Because what happens is isolation in the people of God leads to indifference to what's happening out there. See, when all I'm concerned about is, is everything okay in my life? Am I doing okay? Is my family all right? Are my accounts settled? Are, are things going well for me? Once they are, now I become indifferent to what's going on in anyone else. And it sets up the enemy perfectly for his greatest tragedy. Divide and conquer. See, isolation leads to indifference, which ultimately ends with iniquity. I'm not accountable to you. You don't worry or have to keep tabs on me. And so we begin to just do what's right in our eyes behind closed doors. And we know how to put up the front in public, in a public setting. And you know what it led to? It led to the children of Israel wasting 350 years of their existence. Because they end up 350 years later in the exact same place that they started out when Joshua had set them on the path that leads to life. What was God's plan for his people? The great shepherd of Israel who desired to lead his sheep, his plan, his perfect plan for them, was that they would experience his presence and his peace. That they would enjoy the life that he would call abundant. Instead, they wasted 350 years following after their own lust. The question that stands before us as we complete this study of this book is what about us? What will be the testimony that's written over our lives in the end? See, Jesus made our call, our commission very clear. He said, go make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, verse 19. We've been told to go. That's an action word. We're to do something, not isolate, not indifference, not iniquity, but we're to go. We're to make. We're to take the resources at our disposal, our gifts, our talents, our sphere of influence, our resources. And we're to make something that is transform something into something else. And he tells us what that is. It's disciples. That we're to go out and we're to make an impact for the Lord in our world, in our days. But the choice is ours. We can either isolate, become indifferent, and wallow in iniquity. Or we can walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We can follow the great shepherd and bishop of our souls. And we can make an impact and make our lives count in these days. May God give us wisdom. And may he give us vision to see ourselves in light of this great testimony. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for allowing us to study it and see it. We thank you for the lens that it is for us as we examine our world in 2014. Lord, our nation is the book of Judges. In many ways, our lives are the same. We would ask, Father, that you would take the things that we've heard over these past weeks and months, and especially the things that we heard tonight, 
And that you would do a work within us, Lord, changing us. Shaping and reshaping us. You would give us a fresh vision for why we're here on this earth. Help us to take assessment, Lord, of where we are honestly. And help us to see where you would lead us as we surrender to you. Give us wisdom, Lord. And teach us your way moving forward from here. We know, Lord, that your plans for us are for peace and not for evil, to give us a future and a hope. You tell us that your thoughts are more in number towards us than the sand that's on the seashore. And that your will is good. So, Father, reveal to us what you've called us to be and help us to do what you've called us to do. Give us wisdom as a church and as a people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.